0: Like something out of a Michael Bay movie, a crash in downtown Chicago became America's first civil aviation catastrophe. Today we're discussing the Wingfoot Air Express disaster of 1919. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Fair warning, this episode deals with death and destruction and is not recommended for delicate ears. Listener Brad suggested this episode's topic. Thanks, Brad. For those of you interested in sending me topics to consider, details on how to do so are at the end of the episode. I've talked before about the long-forgotten South Side Chicago Entertainment Centers of the early 20th century, like Sansosi, discussed in Episode 114, and White City, a nearly 14-acre park at 63rd Street and what is now King Drive. The White City had roller coasters, ballrooms, shooting galleries, and even a walkthrough diorama that depicted the famous or infamous Johnstown, Pennsylvania Flood, because everyone needs to experience a diorama about a dam breaking and 2,200 people being killed by the surge of water. So weird. Anyway, one of the other things that took place at White City during the First World War was the construction of B-Class dirigibles by the U.S. Navy, who had leased the aerodrome at White City. After the war, the aerodrome switched back to commercial use once again. Quick aside, here, if I understand things correctly, is the difference between dirigibles and blimps. A blimp is an air vehicle whose shape is maintained by the pressure of the gases within its envelope. So once there are no gases inside, it fully loses shape like a balloon. A rigid airship has a framework surrounding one or more individual gas cells and maintains its shape because of the framework and not from the pressure of its lifting gas. Now, if you're thinking, what about a Zeppelin? A Zeppelin refers to a rigid airship manufactured by a specific German company, the Zeppelin Airship Construction Company. Yes, there will be a test. While an entertainment center may seem like an odd location for the manufacturing of blimps, there is a pretty easy explanation for this. Joseph Beifeld, one of the main investors at White City, was a ballooning nut and encouraged the development of blimps for travel. Also, there was room there. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio, had been working at White City on a version of their blimp called the Wingfoot Air Express, which arrived at the park in pieces on June 29, 1919. Now, when I think of blimps, I think of uh, blimps at sports events, and of the 1977 John Frankenheimer movie, Black Sunday, About a blimp with a bomb in it at the Super Bowl, which come to think of it is still just about a blimp at a sports event. What I didn't know about blimps is the number of companies that thought blimps would be a legitimate type of air transportation, not just regional city to city transportation, but transatlantic flights using blimps. So confident that air transportation by dirigible was going to be huge, the Blackstone Hotel at 636 South Michigan Avenue planned to have something called Drome No. 1 built on top of the new hotel. Uh, Drome, short for aerodrome, refers to, quote, an airfield equipped with control tower and hangars as well as accommodations for passengers and cargo, end quote. According to the 1910 newspaper article, which reads more like a hype piece, When drummers come in from a transcontinental trip at a rate of a couple hundred miles an hour and pick out a good place to land, they will see Drome Number 1, the Blackstone Hotel, glare at them from the top of the hotel, and naturally that is where they will go. Uh, There's talk of a sky parlor that would accommodate 50 people, and the words dromer and droming are used what seems to be somewhere between 75 and 4 billion times. In the article, Paul Goris, manager of the New Blackstone, claims, quote, "...this drome is a business proposition. It is built not only for the present, but with a view of caring for the droming guests of the near future." The airsport will be as popular, although perhaps more exclusive, than automobiling. End quote. I guess only time will tell whether Mr. Gorez was correct. Although it does not appear the Blackstone Drome No. 1 was ever built, the Medina Athletic Club at 505 North Michigan Avenue, now the Hotel Intercontinental, did have a blimp mooring installed when it was built in 1929, although it is unlikely that was ever used either. The Wingfoot Air Express, the craft built at the Windy City Aerodrome, was 158 feet long, 33.4 feet in diameter and had a 95,000 cubic foot gas capacity. The lift gas was hydrogen, as full-scale production and use of helium in the U.S. wasn't really a thing yet, as it was super expensive. Helium cost $125 per thousand cubic feet, while the more volatile hydrogen was only $5 per thousand cubic feet. The two Nome Lerone rotary air-cooled engines provided 110 horsepower each and could reach a cruising speed of 40 miles per hour at an altitude of 1,200 feet. A 34-foot-long open gondola had a passenger and crew seating capacity, estimated at 6, that's 2 or 3 crew and 3 or 4 passengers. Cost for the airship was $100,000, approximately $1. $1.7 million in today's money. Uh, BT dubs, the name Wingfoot refers to Goodyear's corporate logo and Wingfoot Air Express was a nod to Goodyear's Akron to Boston trucking subsidiary. Monday, July 21st, 1919 was an ideal day for the maiden flight of the Wingfoot. Sunny, warm, and not too windy. At 9 a.m., Goodyear pilot John A. Bettner climbed aboard the Wingfoot Air Express with two mechanics, Henry Wacker and Carl Buck Weaver. Bettner, nicknamed Jack, was born in June of 1892 in Ohio. After earning his Bachelor of Science degree at Washington and Jefferson College in 1916, he joined Goodyear as a factory worker, but soon saw something that would change his life a recruiting post on the bulletin board looking for 10 men to become pilots. Goodyear had won the contract to make blimps for the U.S. Navy, and they needed men to pilot the airships at their facility at Wingfoot Lake, outside of Akron. Bettner made his first solo flight within the year and secured Airship Pilot License number 13, from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, the World Aviation Authority. He also held airship transport license number one from the U.S. Commerce Department. During World War I, Bettner trained 200 officers to fly blimps at Wingfoot Lake. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. The Wingfoot aircraft rose into the Chicago sky and headed north, following a path along what is now King Drive. Bettner would later testify the flight was uneventful, mooring in Grant Park to the amazement of a growing crowd of thousands. At 2.30 p.m., Bettner took off again, this time traveling farther north along the Lake Shore to Diversity Parkway, just over four miles to the north. Aboard the airship with Bettner and his mechanics for this run was Army Colonel Joseph C. Morrow, there to evaluate the blimp for the military, and two writers from the Chicago Evening Post. The Wingfoot Air Express eventually turned back, landing in Grant Park once again. After an hour, Bentner was ready to return to White City, having shown the aircraft to thousands on the ground and impressing those like Colonel Morrow. For the flight back to White City, Jack Bettner, along with his two mechanics, was joined by Earl Davenport, the publicist for White City, and Milton Norton, a photographer for the Chicago Herald and Examiner, one of Chicago's six English-language daily newspapers at the time. Earl Davenport had worked as a sports writer for local newspapers for a number of years, but had recently switched careers, wanting to give public relations a go. Davenport was so excited about going up in one of the Wingfoot's maiden flights. He wrote in that week's edition of the White City News that he felt, quote, like a kid with his first pair of red top boots, end quote. Milton Norton was 45, significantly older than his colleagues, but he had experience as a cameraman, and he was available when the call came into the newsroom about the blimp at Grant Park. Grabbing his equipment, Norton was out the door and headed to the park and to Destiny. In Grant Park, preparations were being made for the final flight. As part of the safety precautions, Jack Betner gave each of the passengers a parachute harness belt, explaining that the rope tied to the buckle was fastened to a parachute pack attached to the outside of the blimp. If for some reason they had to jump out of the aircraft... The ropes would pull the parachutes and open them automatically. The parachute would take care of itself. At 4.50 p.m., Jack Bettner sounded a warning from the blimp siren. The lines that tethered the Wingfoot foot in Grant Park were released, and the silver blimp began to rise into the now gray sky. Bettner turned the craft east toward the lake. The man set single file in the aircraft on leather-covered wicker seats. The engines purred, and the two propellers spun, easily cutting through Chicago's warm, late-afternoon air. Bettner turned the Wing Foot Air Express north. Everything was working as it should. Bettner decided to head west so that the blimp could pass over the downtown area. Milton Norton would be able to get pictures of the city from above. No other newspaper would have photos as impressive as these in the following day's paper, and the positive press about the new Goodyear aircraft would be invaluable to the company. On the streets below, cars pulled over and drivers exited their vehicles to stare up into the evening sky. Workers in offices crowded windows to see the large silver object. As the Wingfoot Air Express crossed over State Street, Jack Bettner felt a tremor in the fuselage. Looking up, he saw smoke and flames and knew immediately something was terribly wrong. As he would later recall, he stood up and faced his passengers, yelling to them, Over the top, everybody! Jump, or you'll burn alive! The mechanics, Henry Wacker and Carl Buckweaver, along with the publicist Earl Davenport and Milton Norton, the newspaper photographer, looked back at Bettner in shock. The flames moved quickly, crackling loudly as they consumed the blimp. As the airship began to buckle, Jack Bettner jumped. Just south of downtown, the White Sox had won their first game of a doubleheader against the Yankees. Three innings into the second game, Spectators and players watched the chaos unfolding to the north. Sherman Duffy, sports writer for the Chicago Daily Journal, later recounted, "...it was the most quickly reported accident that ever occurred. The blazing balloon had not reached the ground before its fall had been telegraphed to newspaper offices both here and in New York. Witnesses could see the men from the flaming blimp falling away from the airship." Mechanic Carl Weaver's chute caught fire before it opened completely, and he hurtled toward the building below, crashing through that building's skylight. The other mechanic, Harry Wacker, also had a parachute that was burning, although more slowly. He was able to control his descent, but as the chute shrank, he spun more wildly until he struck the ledge on the insurance exchange building. As he started to get his footing, he fell again. Newspaper photographer Milton Norton hesitated while exiting the blimp, losing important seconds trying to gather up his camera gear. His chute also burned, and as he hurtled toward the ground, he also spun. Norton collided with a window at the Western Union building. With such force, he smashed it and was momentarily snagged on the sill, but his momentum was too strong and he continued falling. As a trained pilot, Jack Bettner knew to jump as far from the blimp as he could, which kept most of his parachute from the flames. Unfortunately for Bettner, part of his chute was singed, causing him to spin during his descent. His feet soon felt the hard surface of a building's roof underneath them. He didn't realize it right away, but he had landed safely on the Board of Trade building, one of the tallest buildings in Chicago at the time. Earl Davenport, the White City publicist, had tried to jump clear of the blimp like the others, but his rope got caught in the blimp's rigging. He dropped about 50 feet and just hung there, upside down, struggling to get free, swinging back and forth as the flaming aircraft folded in on itself and dropped toward the building below, filled with those unaware of the horror moments away. At the two-story Illinois Trust and Savings Bank at Jackson and LaSalle, customers were long gone, but roughly 150 bookkeepers and clerks, nearly all female, were still working. In the center of the building's main floor were the desks, occupied by bank officers, sonographer pool, telegraph stations, and clerks. Those desks were surrounded on three sides by teller cages. Above all this, a skylight. An assistant cashier at Illinois Trust and Savings named F.I. Cooper had stepped away from his desk to walk to the bank's vault when he heard shattering glass overhead. As Cooper would later detail, the body of a man so badly burned and mangled that I could not tell at first that it was a man came hurtling through the air and fell at my very feet. As a large shadow passed over the skylight of the two-story building, anyone who may have glanced up had little time before. The burning, pilotless husk of the dirigible came down hard with a crash loud enough to be heard throughout the loop, showering those inside with debris. As the blimp came to rest on the marble floor, the gas tanks exploded, sending out a wave of flaming gasoline in a 50-foot radius covering the unsuspecting workers. One employee who exited his office when he heard the glass shatter was knocked over by the explosion. When he got up, someone ran into him, screaming, ''Oh my God, it's raining hell.'' Employees, many soaked with fuel, tried to avoid the flames and find a way out. Many did, some did not. Police and firefighters arrived at the scene. Milton Norton, the photographer, lay in the street seemingly dead, but someone got him into a passing car and whisked him off to the hospital. Those in the loop gathered near the crash site at LaSalle and Jackson, some to help and many to watch in horror. Estimates claim nearly 20,000 people crowded the street that fateful afternoon. Back in the bank, firefighters did their best to bring the flames under control and save anyone they could bloodied, broken bodies, and worse, were brought out and sent to nearby hospitals as quickly as possible. Jack Bettner, the pilot, had made his way down to the street to look for his crew and passengers. He didn't get far before police identified him and arrested him. C.T. Heidecker in Chicago for the day from the northern suburbs witnessed the Wingfoot crash from the 16th story of a building a block away. "...it was the most sickening thing I ever saw. We reached the window just before the blimp crashed into the roof of the bank. If it had fallen 50 feet farther east, the death toll would have been much greater for the streets were with people at that hour of the tragedy." Among the initial dead, a 16-year-old named Jacob Carpenter, who worked as a messenger for the bank. 27 others were hurt, but would later recover from their injuries. Chicago City Council remained in session that night after news of the Wingfoot disaster spread. The discussion revolved around an emergency resolution to prohibit all aviation over downtown Chicago. Local residents went from concern for those affected by the crash to anger that an experimental craft was allowed over such a populated area. Shockingly, crews worked through the night, making it possible for the bank to open the next day. Milton Norton, the newspaper photographer, broke both his legs in the fall and later died from his injuries at the hospital. Mechanic Harry Wacker would later recover from his injuries. At 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, July 23rd, Marcus Callape, a teller in the Foreign Department of the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank, became the 13th and final victim of the Wingfoot air crash. Calopy was covered with flaming gasoline when the tanks of the airship exploded in the bank. By Friday of that week, a commission was established by the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company to determine the damages due for those killed in the Wingfoot crash and compensation for those injured. Three men were appointed and accepted the responsibility: Judge Henry Horner of the Probate Court, John H. Wigmore, Dean of Northwestern University Law School and John J. Mitchell, president of the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank. The stated goal of this commission was to fairly compensate those affected without the added difficulties with court costs and expense of hiring attorneys, but to most, it appeared Goodyear was eager to quickly and quietly move on from this incident. Arrests were made of Goodyear employees, but the prosecution of those involved with the Wingfoot disaster was dismissed as no existing laws were violated. Goodyear paid out $250,000, more than $4.1 million in today's dollars, in wrongful death claims. No specific cause for the fire aboard the Wingfoot was ever determined. Goodyear switched to using helium in their dirigibles in 1925. Regulations were eventually passed in Chicago regarding air travel over the densest parts of the city, The Grant Park airstrip was closed, and efforts to transform a small airport on the city's southwest side into the Chicago Air Park, now known as Midway, began in 1923. Nearly two decades after the crash of the Wingfoot Air Express over Chicago, the hydrogen-lifted LZ-189 Hindenburg Zeppelin crashed in Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937 killing 35 on board and one person on the ground. Air traffic by dirigible would never recover. Jack Bettner, the pilot of the Wingfoot Air Express, went on to a long career with Goodyear, earning the nickname the Iron Man of the Airships. After cheating death a few times while piloting, his passing was a quiet one. Bettner was a great-grandfather when he died at age 68 in Miami, following a two-week illness in 1961. On the site where the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank once stood is the 20-story Wintrust Financial Corporation building. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Wingfoot Air Express disaster. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com much of this story was influenced by gary chris 2012 book city of scoundrels i have links to that book and other items related to chicago's amazing history if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more anything ordered through those links not just the items listed may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes. Posted throughout the week, the original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, sir. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at Angel Eyes Art jks at gmail.com I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.